0: Let's just take it from the top. I don't want to say it again. No, I'll say it once more. <laughs> once,
1: once more. Come on, you can do
0: it. Hello, and welcome to the August 2015 Harvard Medical Labcast. This podcast is brought to you by Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications in Boston. I'm Stephanie Duchen. And I'm David Cameron. In this episode, David tells us about resurrecting ancient viruses to deliver modern gene therapies.
1: And in today's conversation, Stephanie speaks with Dominic Hall, curator of the Warren Anatomical Museum at the Countway Library of Medicine. Uh, Stephanie, can you tell us a little bit about the Warren Anatomical Museum? Absolutely.
0: It's a collection on campus of about 15,000 medical objects, devices, papers um, that got started in about 1847. hmm And those who have heard of it may have heard of it because perhaps its most famous exhibit is the skull of Phineas Gage, who in the early 1800s survived an iron spike going through his head. Wow. They, yes, they have the actual skull.
1: Okay. It's also apparently, uh, I found out through uh, very intensive research, uh, in 2010, the Boston Phoenix listed it as one of the least romantic places <laughs> in Boston to go up there with uh, the former Filene's basement and Babies Are Us. Yeah. So, <laughs>
0: You know, the Warren Museum often makes it into the news as, you know, being, for example, unromantic or odd or strange or weird. And when I brought that up, Dominic made a face, okay. an interesting face, um, and he had some very interesting things to say about the essential humanity of the collection, and shared, you know, a bit about his philosophy of what it means to take care of it. Let's go to it. Great. So here we are in the basement of the Countway Library of Medicine on the Harvard Medical School campus, with Dominic Hall, curator of the Warren Anatomical Museum. Dominic, thanks for being with us this morning.
2: Very happy to be with you.
0: So tell me a little bit about the collection. We say it's got about, what, 15,000 objects now? It's been around for over 160 years.
2: Yeah, so the 15,000 object number is of the Warren Museum's core collection. And in some sense, that's still an estimate because there are even segments of the collection that we're still sort of discovering, particularly the instrumentation and medical devices.
0: Hundreds of years later.
2: Yeah, Yeah. uh, absolutely. And things kept coming in you know, over time, so there's still a great sense of discovery and wonder with even the day-to-day work of the Warren Museum, which is really, I would say, probably one of the great benefits of the job. Mm -hmm. The Warren Museum itself is part of a much larger center for the history of medicine, which is one of the largest academic history of medicine resources in the world, and it has a very large, deep medical rare book collection, it has the archives of the three Longwood schools and a very large, robust personal papers collections of many well-known, particularly Harvard Medical School physicians. Interesting.
0: How did you end up in this position?
2: I, I don't know. It's, <laughs> actually, it's a wonderful question that it, it's almost hard to sort of figure it out. It's always been something that I've been interested in, but really what happened was I was in graduate school, I was interested in these basically three surviving anatomical museums in the United States. The Mütter Museum in Philadelphia, Mm -hmm. the National Museum of Health and Medicine in Washington, D.C., and then the Warren Anatomical Museum, which you could argue is the last one still associated with a medical school, whereas at one time, almost every medical school in the United States had Mm -hmm. an anatomy museum. So there are things that intrigue me initially, and then there are things that intrigue me now. Uh And so initially, it was really about It's the kind of work, it's the kind of museum that just doesn't exist in so many other places. It's such a rare and wonderful thing that it survived. And the ability to look into that kind of collection, to try to get your hands around it, to try to organize it, and then try to bring it to a 21st century public, that's the kind of challenge that was very hard for me to pass up Mm. because it was obviously going to be endlessly intriguing and endlessly sort of rewarding. Now what sort of intrigues me more so is that I was always a great believer, and I always still am a great believer, that a single object in a collection can take you on all these different multiple journeys depending on how you're reading the object. And that's the wonderful thing about the Warren. It's not like an art museum where you look at the thing and it's beautiful and you can recognize its beauty. You have to work sometimes to figure out what makes it beautiful, but once you do, it's really endlessly rewarding.
0: Now, we are in a room right now with some objects laid out on a table and on some carts. Is there something maybe we could look at that could show us how, when you're looking at an object, you're looking at more than just the object?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So...
0: I should note that you are wearing white curatorial gloves.
2: <laughs> and just, Yep, so I'm wearing white gloves, depending on, this, depending on what I'm handling. You wear different kinds of gloves. So for the anatomical stuff, you wouldn't wear white gloves. You usually wear nitrile gloves. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's to protect both you and to protect the object.
0: Now you have just untied a cloth covering what looks like a figurine of a a man with half of a body coming out of his ribs. What is going on? So
2: this guy, his name is Ake. He's Cantonese, and. So at face value, right, this is one of those, those things I was talking about. This is one of those wonderful specimens. So it, it, it's not even a specimen. It's, it's a wooden carved figure.
0: Mm-hmm. About what? A foot tall maybe?
2: I think. He's about a foot. So at face value, you look at Ake and he has something that he can communicate already, right? Or the wooden model of Ake. Like already it's an extraordinary thing. Like it's a sort of a well carved wooden model and the individual is opening his robe and showing you what's a is a parasitic twin that he had growing out of his abdomen. He's also one of these wonderful things to unpack. So, for example, we know a lot about him and his relationship with his twin Mm -hmm. because it was published. And so physicians went to visit Ake, I believe in the 1830s, examined Ake, and then reported back to the American medical establishment through medical journals about Ake, about his parasitic twin, about what the parasitic twin could do in terms of movement what Ake more or less could make him do. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Well, I also know, we've also figured out, that there are two other models of Ake, almost identical to this one, that exist in other collections. So, well, that tells us a different story, that now there's like almost a trade in these figurines of Ake, in these wooden models. People are making them and then distributing them to medical collections. Well, the guys studying Ake were medical missionaries, so there's a medical missionary story to tell. There's this interesting trade in anatomical teaching specimens to tell. So this one object, it's extraordinary to look at, but if you look even beyond the model, there's all these interesting stories to tell.
0: So it's pretty clear that this collection has a lot to say about the history of medicine. Absolutely. Which, appropriately, it is located in the Center for the History of Medicine. But are there also ways in which the collection can contribute to modern medicine?
2: Absolutely. There's a reason that this collection is located at the medical school, and it's to use history to inform the modern physician community. By housing all of these narratives in a place that makes those that work accessible, you're inviting the profession to get as, not just a sense of its history for sort of glorification terms, but you can look at the successes and the mistakes that different physicians have made and use that to inform your own work. You know, one of the easiest examples is we have a large phrenological collection at the Warren Museum.
0: That's the part where people used to think that if you felt the skull you could tell something about the person.
2: Yeah, absolutely. The bumps and divots of your head was a predictor of your personality and your function. And there was a Boston Phrenological Society that was made up of well known physicians in the thirties, in the eighteen thirties. And they believed that there could be up to forty-two different organs inside your skull. <laughs> and for a short period of time, the physician community, at least a part of the physician community, accepted that as science. Well, it's junk science. It's not good science. It's not even really science. But if you hold on to those reminders of that bad science, for example, you're holding the standard. You're holding up a certain historical standard to measure oneself against. And in that same way, if you hold, you know, for example, so this, isn't, this is actually part of the library's collection, but it's an object. It's the scalpel and probe that John Collins Warren used in the ether surgery. Oh, wow. It's a very straightforward object. It's a scalpel with an ivory handle and a blade, uh, and then one long, thin metal probe. It's in a nice display case because it's sort of a revered object, Uh, and it's also displayed above a card of Dr. Warren's from his, actually, his home address in Park Street. So by holding onto this object and displaying this object and photographing this object and making it available online, you were communicating to your modern medical community this moment where John Colin Warren takes a bit of a risk, I mean, more of a risk for the patient, I think, than (laughs) John Collins Warren to try ether as an anesthetic. Sure. It's successful, it's widely published, and that event, one surgery, and multiple surgeries after it, but specifically that one surgery changes the course of medicine. And so you have this object and you can use that object to communicate to your community your science or your surgery can change the course of history. And it's a powerful message to sort of entomb and make accessible and put in the hands uh, of future doctors. Sure.
0: What do you think draws people to this collection?
2: No, I don't, no one community comes to visit the Warren Museum's gallery or use its research collection with one reason in mind. Mm. There are things that draw just like the general public, and it really is just to see something that you probably have never seen before. There's the historical researcher who might be drawn to the collection to really look at something that the outside public might see as fairly mundane, but isn't an object that gives them a gateway into a physician's mind that they're writing about. There are psychology students who are obviously coming, or neuroscience students who are obviously coming uh, to see something like the skull of Phineas Gage, who is a case, a medical case, that has probably followed them through the, their entire educational career. It's like the textbook case mm-hmm. of post-traumatic personality change. So I don't think any one person comes with any one reason in mind. I mean, everyone might come to it differently. One of the wonderful things about the Center for the History of Medicine is almost no matter your, what your specialty is, from you know, primary care to neurosurgery, there's a historical example that you can draw inspiration from in the Center for the History of Medicine.
0: I feel like I have to ask you the standard questions of what are some of your favorite objects that you've got around here? Weirdest, most beautiful, most memorable? it's,
2: It's interesting. So things like... I don't think I really see anything as odd or strange or weird.
0: You might differ from a lot of people in that opinion. I know,
2: but the. The thing about the human body and the thing about medicine is that you know everything that so everything that's represented in a medical collection, you know, came from human beings in some way or came to treat human beings. Like everything is incredibly linked to the human body and the human experience. I recognize that it's probably strange to other, like that some of the things are strange to other people, but. If that's the only lens that you're looking at the Warren Museum from, you're doing a real disservice to the patient community that's actually within the Warren Museum. Which is maybe one of the most interesting things that we grapple with is that you can setting aside the instrumentation and the devices. There's a patient population in the Warren Museum,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and they have stories, both medical and human, that we want to preserve and communicate in a way that respects their privacy. And so when we're put up against like a narrative of like the most amazing things or the strangest things or the craziest things, like by classifying an individual within that context you're stripping away certain elements, I think, of their humanity, and at the same time, you're devaluing the important medical information that those individuals were, were saved to communicate. And that's the thing I think we sort of ask ourselves every single day. At least that's the thing I ask myself every single
0: day. We hear about, obviously, doctors wanting to treat their patients with dignity, but it sounds like you also want to treat the remains of the patients with yeah, dignity absolutely.
2: and, and things that belong to them. Yeah, absolutely. And that is completely, I think, informed by the culture of Harvard Medical School. Like with, Because this collection is within a caregiving system and a care education system, it changes the entire way that you think about the individuals and the case histories that you're preserving. I mean, I'm still occasionally, will see things that I'm amazed by, um, but everything now really strikes me as sort of infinitely human.
0: What has amazed you recently?
2: That's a great question. Um, I mean, one of the, my most favorite things I've actually taken recently was the giant skull. Uh,
0: well, not everybody listening knows the story of the giant skull. Giant
2: skull. skull. So, for, it's actually a wonderful... I don't know, everything I, I, everything I say, it sounds like I think everything's wonderful, but... Um, <laughs> A lot of these things really are. So the, the giant skull is a giant paper mache and plaster skull. And by giant, it's about seven feet tall. Yeah. And it's on a large, heavy dolly with casters on it so you can move it around. And it's a cross-section, so it's half a skull, actually. <laughs> and it was created by a model maker and a Harvard physician. It's, so it's a wonderful artist and physician-scientist collaboration. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Professor Thomas Dwight, who was a sort of major figure in anatomy at the turn of the century, so the turn of the 19th into the 20th century, Mm -hmm. he was very interested in the variables within the human skeleton. So just the normal, healthy human skeleton, how everybody's skeleton was different. And to teach osteology, he needed some new teaching tools. And to reach the students in the back of the room, he needed really big teaching (laughs) tools. And so he created, with this artist's help, J.H. Emerton, uh, very large skull models, a giant model of the foot, a giant model of the hand, a big spine model with the different vertebrae in it. And these things were used, particularly the skulls, were used in the teaching of anatomy at Harvard Medical School up until two years ago. And that's when the skull was brought into our collection. And there's still a giant skull at the Program for Medical Education now that they still use.
0: Where do you keep a seven-foot skull?
2: So right now it's in the reading room. It's, <laughs> it's, it's very hard to find home for the giant skull. So uh, it's wonderfully in our reading room in Holmes Hall in the Center for the History of Medicine. So it can be continually appreciated by uh, the people using our collections.
0: So just, like, just stare at you while you're reading?
2: No, it's sort of looking wistfully out into the distance, actually. Okay. It's not a very focused stare.
0: <laughs> What do you wish people would ask you when they interview you?
2: Yeah, I think I both want people to know how I think about the collection and ask me you know, why I feel invested in the work. And in the same time, I don't really want to talk about why I'm invested in the work. So it's so I think the question that I most want people to ask me, I also don't, um, <laughs> because I have an emotional connection to the work. And maybe you're not supposed to have an emotional connection. I can't really tell.
0: What emotional connection do you have to the work?
2: Ah, uh, I just said I didn't like to answer that question. Yeah, but you and also said, said you wanted people to ask you. Yeah, so I think it's it's unlike any other. I don't know. I don't want to generalize about other museums. I guess it's any like any other museum I've worked in, in that you feel very. I'm you. You start to feel very protective of the individuals in the collection. With something like the Warren, there's this sort of responsibility that's very hard to totally describe. In that, it's not just about keeping these individuals safe. You're trying to inform the public about who they are, and why their stories are important, and why and how they can continue to change the way we think about medicine. And I, you know, it's, you're always trying to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sort of amazing. Like you just didn't. I didn't think I would get there. Like I don't know. Yeah, I'm still not sure where I'm going. Actually.
0: But you're hopeful for the future. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm
2: absolutely hopeful for the future. I mean, the War Museum is a wonderful thing. It's growing. Access is growing. We're describing new parts of the collection. We're looking at new ways to open it up to researchers, both historical and medical. And, you know, we really wanted to help change the perception of the history of medicine. And. Uh, yeah, it's been on a real positive, positive trajectory for the last twenty or so years, and it's been fun to be a part of.
0: So Phineas Gage, probably the most famous slash infamous object in your collection, the skull with a giant hole in it from a man who had a bar shot through his head. Um, but you've got so many other things to talk about. Uh, we've got a tray of eyeballs here. I mean, what, what should, Let's look at one last thing before we go.
2: Okay. Um, In front of me on this cart, on a piece of uh, acid-free inert foam, uh, is a series of uh, upwards to 50, I think the collection numbers in, of wax eyes of different eye ailments. (laughs) Uh, So it's a, I I think there might be one healthy eye, um, but other than that, every other eye has got uh, some sort of condition.
0: Yeah, some of these are not pretty.
2: So the eyeball itself, I believe, is
1: is a glass eye,
2: and then it's wax around it. And then there are eyelashes, so there are some thin fibers on some for eyelashes.
0: they are, what, maybe three inches across? Yeah,
2: I would say. uh, Eyebrows, eyeballs. uh, Sorry. No, no, not at all. And so it was made by a wax model maker named Jules uh, Tallrich. It was donated to us by a physician named Williams in the 1870s who transferred it actually out of Boston City Hospital. The collection itself is really interesting, just looking at it visually, but each eye is placed on a wooden paddle. And there's a handle on each one of these paddles. So it's clear, at least to me, that this is either a teaching or a reference object. Mm. So it's not just a sort of wonderful collection aesthetically to look at of eyes. You're using this in some sort of context. You're holding it up on one of those paddles. And so you can really interpret it in two ways. You can inter- interpret it as a teaching tool. So you're talking about these different diseases of the eye in the classroom. You want something visual that you could either pass around or hold up to a student. You can also imagine a context where they would be used in the clinic, where you maybe as a diagnostic tool. You know, some of that's sort of conjecture on my part, but it's interesting that just from looking how the object is made, you can sort of make those sort of historical conclusions. Like, and then, if this is actually used in the clinic, that's really interesting to me that, you know, you might be holding this up against, you know, someone's head to try to diagnose their eye disease. You're using it as a visual reference tool. And it did come out of Boston City Hospital, so
0: um,
2: that possibility certainly exists.
0: I like this one here where the eye is sort of sealed over and it's all bubbly. Do you have uh, favorites in this, in tray this par- of pathology? In this
2: particular collection? I don't think I do. I don't actually ever really appreciate them as single objects. I'm only really looking at them as, like, all of them together. Yeah. And for me, I'm mostly interested in how they were used, Mm -hmm. rather than the specific disease they represent.
0: Well, I don't know where we can go from a tray of eyeballs, so I think I will thank you for spending time with us this morning.
2: It was absolutely my pleasure. I had a lot of fun.
0: So did I. I hope that we'll have a chance to come back again.
2: Anytime. We're always here.
0: And now for this month's Abstract.
1: Researchers have a new technique for improving gene therapy—resurrection. Well, not quite as dramatic as that, but close. In current gene therapy procedures, researchers use a harmless virus to shuttle a therapeutic gene into a cell, but sometimes an individual's natural immunity blocks this process. Scientists have tried to tinker with these viruses and make them more robust, but it's hard to do this without destroying the virus itself. Here, and this is where the drama begins, researchers at Harvard Medical School and Mass Ioneer took a different approach. Using computer technologies, they retraced the virus's ancestral history. In essence, they figured out what the virus looked like at multiple points throughout its evolution. They then took these ancient blueprints and built a series of new, and by new we mean very, very old, viral vectors. Interestingly, they found that the most ancient form of the virus was the most successful in targeting liver, muscle, and retina cells in mice. In fact, in some cases, it was even superior to contemporary vectors. The researchers emphasized that none of the viruses used are known to cause any disease, and their replication machinery is disabled prior to use.
0: This podcast is a production of Harvard Medical School's Office of Communications. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our producer, Rick Grola. To learn more about the research discussed in this episode, or to let us know what you think, visit hms.harvard.edu slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at Harvard Med, or like us on Facebook. Now we'd like to leave you with a thought by Marie Curie. Nothing in life is to be feared. It is only to be understood. Now is the time to understand more so that we may fear less.